Okay, please open your Bibles to James chapter 1. You'll find the, uh, the notes to this morning's message in the bulletin. If you don't have a Bible with you, um, you can get one. We have them available. You can ask an usher for one. The text is written on the back of the insert. And this morning, we'll continue working our way through this first major chunk of the book of James. And I'll remind you briefly of um, our introduction we gave to James and what its major theme is. I've suggested, I've proposed the, the central theme of James is true faith, persevering, working itself out in trials by relying on the wisdom of God. James's concern is that the scattered church, no longer centralized in Jerusalem, but scattered across the Greek world, might endure well the trials that are going to face them as their faith is tested and the tested genuineness of faith is seen in good works in response to those trials, and that they're going to be able to persevere only by relying on the wisdom of God. Now, James helpfully gives us markers to divide up sections. The most common in starting a new section is saying, my beloved brothers, my brothers, and then some imperative verb. We saw that in verse 2. Count it all joy, my brothers. The next section beginning then in verse 16 Do not be deceived, my beloved brothers. So I'm treating verses 2 through 15 as a section that we're working through now. And we're now going to enter into the third part of this section. I'd like to begin by reading all of verses 2 through 18, I mean through 15. And I think you'll see the overarching theme of persevering in trials. Begins the section, it shows up again in verse 12, trials and temptations. Let's read God's word, have a word of prayer, and then we'll dive in. Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. For you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. But if any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God, who gives generously to all without reproach, and it will be given him. But let him ask in faith, with no doubting, for the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea that is driven and tossed by the wind, for that person must not suppose that he will receive anything from the Lord. He is a double-minded man, unstable in all his ways. Let the lowly brother boast in his exaltation and the rich in his humiliation, because like the flower of the grass, he will pass away. The sun rises with its scorching heat and withers the grass. Its flower falls. His beauty perishes, so also will the rich man fade away in the midst of his pursuits. Blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial, for when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life, which God has promised to those who love him. Let no one say when he is tempted, I'm being tempted by God. For God himself, God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one. But each person is tempted when he's lured and enticed by his own desire. Then desire, when it is conceived, gives birth to sin, and sin, when it is full grown, brings forth death. Lord God, as we consider the important issue of persevering in trials, relying on your wisdom in trials, I pray that you'd give us ears to hear and eyes to see, that we would receive your word meekly, that it would bear fruit in our lives, that we would not be those who look in the mirror, forget what we look like, and turn away. And as you give counsel to differing statuses in life, I pray that you would help us to receive that well, that our faith 
would be proven genuine as it is tested, that we might mature, that we might receive a crown of life. In Jesus' name, amen. So we're to primarily be looking at verses 9 through 11 this morning, 9 through 11. Uh, the counsel to the lowly brother, the counsel to the rich person, poor man, rich man. And before we dive into this, I want to make some initial observations. Commentators, people studying James, struggle with finding structure. I, I'm surprised at that. The more I read it, the more I see the, the structure flowing. Certainly, he doesn't arrange his topics as Paul does. Paul most frequently likes to put the doctrinal teaching in the first half of the book, and then imperatives and application in the second half. James is all application. Doctrine is there, but it's brought in as needed, case by case, to support the application he's giving. You remember, James is one of the leaders, if not the leader of the Jerusalem church, and he's trying to shepherd his flock that's been scattered over the Hellenistic world. We know that the people he's writing to are mostly poor, mostly despised, mostly mistreated, and they're being persecuted. And he wants to encourage them, to urge them to persevere, which is why the opening exhortation in verse 2 gets right to the point. Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. This is the theme of the entire section we're in. He picks it up again in verse 12. You'll note James gives a temporal, immediate reason why we should persevere. If we can count our trials as a joyful opportunity, they will produce steadfastness or endurance, and that will create full-orbed character now. You'll notice in verse 12, he puts a secondary motive, a later, an eschatological motive, and that is the crown of life. Because as Jesus said, you must persevere to the end. Blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial. When he stood the test, he will receive the crown of life. Then the section ends with a discussion about how not to grumble and blame God in your trials and testing. The reason why I point this up is that some have a hard time understanding what this counsel to the lowly and the rich has to do. They suggest that James is scatterbrained, jumping here, there, and everywhere. I don't think that's the case. Let me suggest to you how I think the flow of the train of James's thought is. He begins this section by expressing this imperative that we think about, we regard, we interpret our trials rightly. We talked about how, how you think, how you interpret, how you regard what you're going through is going to affect your actions, it's going to affect your feelings, it's going to set the tone for how you respond. And he says it's critically respond this way. Later in the section, we'll get to another way to respond, grumbling, complaining, blaming God, which has another immediate I won't say benefit, but effect, which is it gives birth to sin. And when sin is full grown, long-term effect, death. So both of these two paths, rightly dealing with trials and wrongly dealing with trials, have an immediate effect and a future effect. He then, in verse 5, we looked at this last week, anticipates, but what if I don't know how to do that? I mean, it's, it's tough. Practically speaking, James is saying the cancer diagnosis is a cause for joy. The lost job is a cause for joy. The loss of a loved one, cause for joy, count it all joy. How, how do you do that? I don't know how to do that. I know I'm supposed to. I know God's going to work good through it, but all I can see in it is evil. All I can see in that is harm and suffering. He says, okay, ask for wisdom. Then ask for wisdom. Do it in faith, not doubting, but ask for wisdom. God will give it to you. And we talked about how asking in faith versus doubting is not about intensity of faith. But the totality, the contrast to faith is being split down the middle. 
Even the word doubting means divisions and factions. And so what James is saying is if you come to God saying, Lord, with a submissive attitude, I want to act rightly. I want to to think and behave the way you want me to think and behave, but I don't know how to help. God, as a loving Father, always generously, gladly gives that wisdom out. Here, my child, I'll help you. Here, here's how to think about that. Here's how to respond to that. But if we come instead, as, as he talks about more clearly in chapter 4, with ulterior motives, what you really, God, take the trial away. Give me what I want. Or, Let's see what God has to say, and maybe we'll do that. You come inwardly divided. He says, you're not going to receive anything. In fact, you're unstable in all your ways. The counsel for such double-minded, split-souled disloyalty is given in chapter 4. Weep, howl, repent. There's There's still grace. But come to God sincerely. He gives sincerely, and we're called to ask sincerely. And we're promised this grace freely. If our desire is to please God and we're not sure how to do it, ask our Father. He promises to give it to us. Well, then in that context, I think he's going to apply some of God's wisdom to the socio and economic positions of many of his readers. One of the greatest source of trials, that's your blank, our socioeconomic position is a great source of trials, is the station you are in life. He's talked about various trials. And of course, the family you're born into, the country you're born into, the time period you're born into, the strata you're born into, that's going to determine many, if not most, of the trials and temptations you face in your life. And so James, I think, is metering out this wisdom he's just spoken of to the poor, to the lowly, and to the rich. I think that's the idea. Before he brings back his central thesis, persevering in trials in verse 12. So that's why I think this fits together. Here, he's going to display some of that wisdom. There's a commonality of thought. The opening command in verse 2, I've got to regard, I've got to think about my trials a certain way. What you're going to find out is his counsel to the lowly, his counsel to the rich, is this along the same lines. How they think about their position, how they evaluate their position. That's, that's some of the commonality of thought. Also connecting it, the lowly brother links back to the exhortation in verse 2. My brothers, this is linking it further together. Okay. So the basic idea of this section is that our socioeconomic position is a great source of trials. In fact, look to the end of chapter 1. How we interact with money and wealth is a great source of proving the genuineness of our faith. Look at verses 26 and 27 of chapter 1. If anyone thinks he is religious and does not bridle his tongue but deceives his heart, that person's religion is worthless. Religion that is pure and undefiled before God the Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their affliction, and to keep oneself unstained from the world. And if I were to take my central thesis of James, that true faith works under pressure, under trial, perseveres by relying on God's wisdom, I would further say that the three spheres, theaters that that James has in mind to look for and evaluate that are going to be the tongue, Your interaction with wealth and poverty and money and world and worldliness. Those are the three places he's looking. He gives them right here. Look, you think you're religious. How's your tongue? No, you're not. It's worthless. And then he wants to look. How how do you deal with the poor, the powerless, the weak, 
True and undefiled religion, religion that is pure and undefiled before God the Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their affliction and to keep oneself unstained from the world. So James is bringing to bear one of the primary places he wants to evaluate and encourage us to persevere in trial right here in our passage. Point C, and this is important to understand, differing trials demand differing counsel. Differing trials demand differing counsel. And here's what I mean. God has different things to say to different people in different situations. The reason why I highlight this is our culture, as far as I can tell in pop psychology, generally has a one-size-fits-all approach. You need to feel good about yourself. You need to feel important. You need to feel that you matter. And that most people's problems boil down to low self-esteem, low self-actualization, low self-worth. That's somewhat true in our first case. It's not true in our second. And so we would do well to consider that the Bible has a much more actually sophisticated treatment of these things. Some people in certain trials need some counsel. Differing trials demand differing counsel. One, one passage to illustrate this, 1 Thessalonians 5.14, we urge you, brothers, now notice three categories here, admonish the idle, encourage the faint-hearted, help the weak, be patient with them all. One of the things I have to do pastorally interacting with someone is, who am I dealing with here? And not quickly coming to a conclusion. From dealing with someone who's idle, they need, they need to shove, they need some exhortation, admonishment. From dealing with the weak, they need help. I need to encourage those who are discouraged and faint-hearted. That's not an exhaustive list. So James is applying God's wisdom, and God's wisdom in the different circumstances of life looks different for different people. Okay? So that's my introduction. Let's now dive into the first set of counsel, God's wisdom for the lowly brother. God's wisdom for the lowly brother. It's pretty straightforward. Most of the text goes to the rich but still, it's pretty profound and I think encouraging what he says in verse 9. Let the lowly brother boast in his exaltation. Let the lowly brother boast in his exaltation. Now, what does he mean by lowly? Probably poor. But it's the, it's the conglomerate of low social status, not esteemed highly. And it's pretty straightforward to think through who does our culture, who would a culture in the first century view lowly? They would be low economic, they'd be low social. These are the nothings and the nobodies. These are the people without clout and power. The majority of who James is writing to. Christians who because of a quickly arising persecution in Jerusalem fled, probably with very little they could take with them, to the Hellenistic Greek world. This is probably most of James's audience. I'm not sure if it's most of our audience today. Perhaps it is. I doubt it. And what he tells the lowly is that they're to boast, and there's, a, there's an implied, built-in, almost contradiction here. Not in their loneliness, but in their heights, their exaltation, their highness. Let the lowly brother boast in his exaltation. The blanker, he must boast in his high position. He must boast in his high position. What on earth are you talking about? James will explain some of what he means a little further. But first, I want to point out to you how this echoes Jesus' own teaching. I told you in our introduction that James, even though he doesn't have much to say directly about Jesus, is echoing 
repeating his teaching in his earthly ministry over and over. Think of the Beatitudes. Blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are the humble. Blessed are the meek. James is telling the lowly. They are to boast, to literally take pride in the good sense of pride. You know there's a bad way to be proud, and there's a good way. You know, I'm proud of our church. I'm proud of my children when they do well. Right? That, that's, that, that's good. You're proud of your nation. And there's pride that's bad. James can use the same word. We'll see it a little later for both good and bad boasting. Bad, good and bad pride. But here, you are to glory in, you are to boast in, if you're the lowly, his high position. Turn, turn over to chapter 2. I'll show you two examples James uses. Look at verse 5 of chapter 2. My beloved brothers, has not God chosen those who are poor in this world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom? Has not God chosen those who are poor in this world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom? So what, what high position do they have? Well, God chose him to be rich in faith. God chose him to be rich in faith. If you know the Lord Jesus Christ, before you chose him, he chose you. God has chosen these people to have a richness that doesn't end. Jesus warned about having treasure or moth and rust destroy but those who are rich in faith are rich forever. Now, of course, this does challenge your value system. This is only good news. This is only something to boast in if you value such things, which again is partly how these trials test your faith. What do you really want? What do you crave? What satisfies you? What gives your life meaning? What do you hope in? And James is saying to those who are nothings in the society, the lowly, the nobodies, set your mind on, boast in, delight in the reality. God chose me, out of all people, to be rich in faith, to be rich in knowing Him. This is the same logic Paul uses in 2 Corinthians 8 9. You know by the grace our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so you, by his poverty, might become rich. Where the risen Lord, writing his letter to the church at Smyrna, in Revelation 2, 8, 9, says this, the angel of the church at Smyrna write, the words of the first and the last who died and came to life, I know your tribulation and your poverty, but you are rich. And the slander of those who say they are Jews and are not, but are of the synagogue of Satan. And so what we're getting back to again is how you evaluate yourself. God has chosen him to be rich in faith. God has chosen him to be an heir of the kingdom. I mean, this is the question that many coming up to Jesus are asking in the Gospels. What must I do to inherit the kingdom of God? Here is someone who is an heir of the kingdom of God. They're, they're going to inherit the kingdom of God. They are rich. They have a high position. They have something to boast and delight in, if such things matter to them, of course, implied. Which brings us then to point B. What this is really about, and this is how this ties back in to James chapter 1, verse 2, is how he must not consider himself the way the world does. How will he interpret his situation? 
How will he evaluate himself? Just as the opening charge was to think about your trials this way, the counsel to the lowly brother is consider and evaluate yourself this way, the way God sees you. Jesus can say to the church at Smyrna, being crushed and persecuted, you're rich. You're rich in my eyes. You're rich towards God. You're rich in faith. You're heirs of a kingdom. You have treasure in heaven that cannot be lost, will not spoil. And then, of course, the exhortation to the lowlies, you've got to interpret and view yourself that way. There are, of course, other ways to view yourself, right? I want to take a moment here to consider, to consider by implication then what the trials might be. He must be aware of the likely temptations of the lowly. What, this counsel is a remedy to something, and I think it helps imply what the trials and the testing might be, right? So what might the trials and the temptations of the lowly brother be? Well, the most obvious one would be theft. This is something the Proverbs speak to. If you don't have and you need, the temptation is to take. Listen to Proverbs 30, verses 8 and 9. Remove far from me falsehood and lying. Give me neither poverty nor riches. Feed me with the food that is needful for me, lest I be full and deny you and say, Who is the Lord? Or lest I be poor and steal and profane the name of God. That's one temptation. Envy is another. You can, you can be poor and love riches just as much as rich people love riches. You're just envious. You have the same value system. You got the same gods. They just have it and you don't. That's the only difference. You can be envious. And you can be impatient with your suffering and you can grumble. Turn to, uh, turn to chapter 5. He gives his poor, mistreated, and abused flock encouraging counsel. We'll look at 5 verses 1 through 6 shortly, but what you see there is the rich oppressing them, the rich defrauding them, not paying them, taking them to court, condemning them to death. Real suffering, real tribulation, real pain and anguish. And he writes to them, verse 7, Be patient, therefore, my brothers, until the coming of the Lord. See how the farmer waits the precious fruit of the earth, being patient about it until it receives the early and the late rains? You also be patient. Establish your hearts for the coming of the Lord is at hand. So I think some of the trials would be the, the, the temptation to steal, to be envious of those. You can read Psalm 73 where the psalmist confesses his envy of the wicked rich. You can be impatient. Lord, when's that kingdom coming? Lord, when are you going to deliver me? When are you going to make things right? And you can grumble. He goes right on to the next section to grumbling. 5.12. Um, no, not sorry, not 5.12. Verse 5.9. Do not grumble against one another. These are all the temptations of the lowly. To grumble, to complain, to be impatient, to be envious. The other possibility would be hopelessness and discouragement. I mean, turn to chapter 2. And you'd think that as much as the world mistreats the low and the poor, You'd like to think when you show up to the people of God, things would be different. But, but look what's happening in some of these churches. They're still actually meeting in synagogues. This is how early the letter's written. Look at what he has to tell them in chapter 2. My brothers, show no partiality as you hold the faith of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory. For if a man wearing a gold ring and a fine clothing comes in and you into your assembly, your synagogue literally, and a poor man in shabby clothing comes in, 
And if you pay attention to the one who wears the fine clothes and you say, you sit here in a good place, while to the poor man you say, you stand over there or sit down at my feet, have you not then made distinctions among yourselves and become judges of evil, mo- evil thoughts? Apparently, even in the church, there's shaming and dishonoring and preference. That's, that's got to be difficult. That can be discouraging. You could lose one's hope. Um, I, I thought the people of God would be different, but they have, seem to have the same standards, the same values, or discontentment, or even shame. He, he says as much. Look, look in chapter 2, verse 6. In doing this, you've dishonored the poor man. What's, what's another, name, another name for dishonor? Well, it's shame, right? Honor and shame, honor and glory. So those are the potential trials of the lowly, and they're told to focus on the high position they have that God has given them. I want you to notice what they're not told to focus on. And this is still a subtle distinction from the self-esteem movement. The self-esteem movement, what we crave for as people, is I want to be told that I myself, in and of me, I want validation. Tell me I'm good. Tell me I'm worthy. Tell me I'm deserving. Tell me I'm smart. Tell me that I am something valuable. None of his counsel directs them to that type of thinking. God has chosen you to be rich. God has made you an heir of the kingdom. It's, it's not encouragement that comes from who and what they are. It's not the world thinks you're nothing, but really you're something. It's rather the world thinks you're nothing. The living God has established and elevated you. We've got to be careful of this because it creeps in. Because we, we understand that we praise God by ascribing value to him. He is worthy and he is great. And he is magnificent. And then if we're not careful, we think he loves us in the same way. He tells me how important I am. And this sort of toxic thinking creeps in. And you hear people say things like, well, Jesus wouldn't have died for trash. Which turns the cross not into an act of grace, but a good bargain on God's part. You know, God's weighing out the son. He loves the son. But man, I'm, these people are valuable too. I'll take the people. You destroy the gospel with such thinking. The, gospel, the good news is God loves me in spite of who I am, not because of who I am. God does not love you because of who you are. He loves you because of who he is. This is back in Deuteronomy, right? Why does the Lord love you? Because he loves you. That is what is to satisfy us. It's not a message about our innate worth and value. It's a message about who he is. What the lowly are to put their boast in. It's not who they are, but who God has made them to be. They are rich in faith because of his gift. Not, again, notice how even in James, he's chosen the poor to be rich in faith. It's not that the poor figured it out and they got rich in faith on their own. It's that God's gracious gift, he's made them heirs of the kingdom. That is what they're to boast and glory in. It's to look away from yourself. In spite of who I am, God chose and thought of me. In eternity past, God thought of me. God had a plan for me. God redeemed me. That is what I'll boast in. And that's the counsel to the lowly. So absolutely, are there those people who need to be encouraged and told, in God's eyes, you are valuable. He has determined to exalt you and bless you. Absolutely. For the poor and for the lowly. What we don't need, fundamentally, though, are rich and wealthy people doing that. We're going to see the counsel they need is something very different. 
which is why we need to open in comments, get this right. For those who are discouraged and depressed and crushed and nothing, yeah, dwell upon the glories of your high position in Christ. Dwell upon the excellencies that God has bestowed upon you, your great future, your rule in his kingdom. But, and I wouldn't categorize myself in the lowly. I think if i got to pick which group I'm going to fall into, it's going to be the second bit. But to the rich, to the wealthy, he's got a different word. So let's take a look at that now. And it gets the more extensive treatment, doesn't it? The lowly brother boasts in his exaltation. And then two verses, and each of the verses are far longer than the one verse in verse 9 to the, to the rich. This gets the weight of the treatment. Let's read it. And the rich in his humiliation. Because like a flower of the grass, he will pass away. But the sun rises with its scorching heat and withers the grass. Its flower falls, its beauty perishes. So also will the rich man fade away in the midst of his pursuits. In some senses, it's the exact opposite things to think about, in some sense. Uh, i got to pause here now and acknowledge a difficulty in this text. It is not entirely clear, and there's a lot of difference of opinion, even as Pastor Daniel and I were talking this week, about when he turns to the rich, he has in mind a rich brother. Part of the reason is grammatically it's difficult. So grammatically... I, I was able to translate this this week. But the low brother must boast in his height or his exaltation and the rich. And the Greek, you've got to bring the verb over, just like the ESV has it, and the rich in his humiliation and with the implied boast. And the question is, is brother also implied? Could, could we translate this, and the rich brother boasts in his exaltation? And before you think it's a slam dunk, of course it's the brother. Let me show you some of the reasons why not. Why not? This is, this is a tough question. The first why not is the only other two clear treatments of the rich in James, they're on the other team. They're perishing. So you look at chapter 2, right? Take a look at me quickly here. Um, I do think ultimately he's talking to those within the body and he has in view a brother. But let me show you why this is difficult. Um, look at verse 6 of chapter 2. But you have dishonored the poor man. Are not the rich the ones who oppress you and the ones who drag you into court? Are they not the ones who blaspheme the honorable name by which you're called? We're not, we're not dealing with Christians there, are we? James is able to say in chapter 2, the rich blaspheme the name of your God and they drag you into courts and they oppress you. Now turn to chapter 5 where he just blasts them. These are the only other clear treatments of the rich in James. He names them three times and Absolutely in the second and third time, and he talks about the rich. He's talking about people who perish. Look at chapter 5. Come now, you rich. Weep and howl for the miseries that are coming upon you. Your riches have rotted, and your garments are moth-eaten. Your gold and silver have corroded, and their corrosion will be evidence against you and will eat your flesh like fire. You have laid up treasure in the last days. Behold, the wages of the laborers who mowed your fields, which you kept back by fraud, are crying out against you. And the cries of the harvesters have reached the ears of the Lord of hosts. You've lived in luxury uh, on the earth and in self-indulgence. You've fattened your hearts in the day of slaughter. You've condemned and murdered the righteous person who does not resist you. And that is just a, an announcement of judgment and wrath and suffering. 
So in favor of the argument that now he's turning his attention to the rich, if you take it that way, you'd be reading this is in some sense he's encouraging the poor not just by telling them to think about their exalted position in Christ but in their hearing he's almost mocking he's he's speaking ironically to the rich you're boasting your grassy witheringness another reason why this might refer to unbelievers is look at the the language describing this the rich in his humiliation, because like the flower, back to James 1.10, he will pass away. The sun rises with its scorching heat and withers the grass. Its flower falls, its beauty perishes. So also will the rich man fade away in the midst of his pursuits. There's a strong case that he's uniformly speaking of the rich of this book. Well, let me tell you why I don't think that's what's going on. First is in the immediate context, I do think the most natural um, supplying of the missing words here is to bring not only boast, but also brother. Let the lowly brother boast in his exaltation and the rich in his humiliation. Implied rich brother. Boast in his humiliation. It also links further back up to the head in, um, greeting in verse 2. Count it all joy, my brothers. So James can in his letter look outside of the letter to unbelievers, but when he does, he starts a new section. As in five one. Come now, you rich. And then comes your imperative verb, weep, howl. And, and third, I think it would, blow, um, would, would break the symmetry here. I think he's got, a parad he's got paradoxal, seemingly paradoxal um, wisdom to give. The low are to look at their height. The rich are to look at their lowness. And that symmetry works best, I think, if it stays within the body of Christ. So I'm going I'm to work under the assumption, I believe... I'm persuaded this is not given ironically, not given mockingly, but this is real counsel. Which means then, if you're not in the group of the lowly and the poor, this is God's counsel for you. Understand, you live, you and I live in the richest country, in the richest nation, in the history of the world. And you may not have as much as the person next to you, but if you were to stand back and think globally, if you were to stand back and think historically, I think most of us probably fall into this category. And the reason that's important is we've got to adopt the right counsel for ourselves. And there are some who need, the counsel they need to hear is boast in your high position. They need to hear that. They need to be focusing their minds on that to, to battle the trials they face. That's where they got to go. There are others who need to be thinking of you're like a flower that perishes in a day. That's pretty different counsel, isn't it? And so it's important we get the prescription right. We get the diagnosis right. So I'll leave that to you. But honestly, work yourself through. Because I know we like to hear. Who doesn't like to hear? You have a high position. Think about that. I mean, that's partly why I talked about the self-esteem movement. Because that fits right in line with that. I like to hear that. I like to hear I'm destined for glory and I got good things. Well, there's some people who need to think about something else. And this isn't as pleasing initially. And so I want to make sure that those of us who need to hear this, hear it. And we don't, as he says a little later in the chapter, look in the mirror, see ourselves, and walk away. Okay, so let's dive in. What's his command? He must boast in his abasement. Abasement. Abasement is not the floor under your main floor. Thank you, Isla. Um, it means lowness. Now, the word doesn't have to here mean something negative. It's the same word that... 
The Virgin Mary says, the Lord has looked upon the humble estate of his servant in Luke 1.48. And, and so I think he's getting this contrast. The rich is to boast in how utterly low he is. I believe what he's saying. I believe he's not being ironic. I think he's absolutely sincere. If you put yourself in the wealthy or rich category, to combat the trials and temptations you face, the truth you and I are going to need to dwell upon is not our height and our exaltation most often, but rather our utter lowness. What does he mean? Well, here he supplies immediately what he means. Whereas I had to go look in chapter 2 to see how the poor are exalted. He gives it right here. The rich in his humiliation. Well, what do you mean his humiliation, his lowness? Because like a flower of the grass, he will pass away. So you're blank here. He is transient and temporary as the flowering grass. He is as transient and temporary as the flowering grass. I'm trying to... I think he's getting at, is both the tenuous hold. There's a fragile hold. The flowering grass is not robust and strong and hearty. It withers quickly. It's cut down quickly. It it is fragile. And it is short-lived. So it is transient. It's got a weak hold on life. And it's temporary. It's the withering grass. Now here... If you turn in your Bibles to Isaiah 40, I believe he is borrowing off of something the prophet Isaiah said. This is also part of the reason why I think you could apply this counsel to believers. So go to Isaiah 40. We'll read something very similar in verses 6 through 8. Isaiah 40. A voice says, cry. And I said, what shall I cry? Here's the message that God wants the messenger to cry. All flesh is grass. All its beauty is like the flower of the field. The grass withers. The flower fades when the breath of the Lord blows on it. Surely the people are grass. The grass withers. The flower fades. But the word of our God will stand forever. And if he is borrowing upon this, then the transience of the rich is not a transience unique to them alone. This is true of all mankind. This is true for everyone. But it's the wealthy and the rich who need to keep that in mind and be thinking about it. They need to be exulting in it. They need to be glorying in it, which we'll try to talk, how do you do that? Notice it's the temporary and the weakness. All flesh is grass All of its beauty, like the flower of the field, the grass withers, the flower fades when the breath of the Lord blows on it. Surely the people are grass. Grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. All of your power and your money and your bank accounts will pass away. Or as I've heard said, there aren't U-Hauls behind hearses, right? And so whatever riches you have, whatever pomp and splendor you have, whatever beauty you have, whatever power you have, whatever self-actualization you have, it's gone like that. Think about that. Boast in that. Glory in that is what James is saying. 
Grass withers, its flower falls, its beauty perishes. So the rich man fade away in the midst of his pursuits. Turn over to James 4, where I think he says something very similar. This is another one of the reasons why I think he's talking. He's not looking outside of the church when he speaks. Um, He doesn't name these people as rich in chapter 4, but clearly they're not the poor. Um, Remember I mentioned there's another type of boasting that's wrong? We're going to look at it here. Come now, verse 13, 413, come now, you who say, today or tomorrow we will go into such and such a town and spend a year there and trade and make profit. You do not know what tomorrow will bring. What is your life? You are a mist that appears for a little time and then vanishes. You ever, you know, after you use the bathroom, you get one of those spray things, that's your life. It's a mist. It appears. Drive into church and it's foggy, and when you come out of church, it's gone. That's your life. Instead, you ought to say, if the Lord wills, we will live and do this or that. As it is, you boast in your arrogance. All such boasting is evil. So he's clearly addressing some people in the scattered church who've got the finances to plan trips of trade and they're going to go spend a year here and they're going to buy and sell and they're going to make profit. Whoever these people are, they're not the dirt poor and lowly. They're at the very least middle class merchants, possibly wealthier. And the, and the counsel is so similar. The rebuke is so similar that I, I think there's good reason to think he's speaking sincerely to the, to the body here. Point two, his glory is found in his innate insignificance, his innate insignificance. Let me tell you why I put the word innate in. Who God chooses to work with, who God chooses to set his love on, cannot be insignificant by virtue of God placing his love, by virtue of God planning things for him. There's a significance. I mean innate significance. The contrast in Isaiah 40 is between human flesh and the breath of God, and against the breath of God, human flesh perishes. What does that look like? What it looks like is this. I own my own home. I got plans. I got a family. I got things I want to do. I've got a position. I've I've got contacts. I I can get things done, a certain amount of things I can get done. And and I can think that that matters. And what I got to realize is I am so utterly powerless, so utterly impotent, so fragile, so temporal, so a mist that I could do nothing to save myself. I could do nothing to earn or merit God's love to make him take notice of me. I need to dwell on that. I need to dwell on the illusion of all of my plans and all of my hopes and schemes. And I need to learn to say, with whatever I plan, if the Lord permits, if the Lord permits, if the Lord permits, if the Lord wills it, because I'm weak, because my plans are... Has not this last year and this pandemic taught us just how impotent we are? I'm guessing most of you had very different plans for 2020 than the way it worked out, right? Anyone plan trips that had to get canceled? Anyone plan to do... I see that hand. Anybody? I mean, I did. We're going to go to a family reunion. That didn't happen. We, we think our plans and our power is great. In a cold spell, a snowstorm, 
a COVID-19 epidemic shatters that. We think we're powerful and effective, and yet we're all headed for a pine box, all of us, if the Lord tarries. And all of our pomp and all of our splendor, look at the analogy here. There is a splendor to it. Oh, yeah, you see someone with wealth, they can look powerful. And there is, in the very short-lived time of their life, they have a certain amount of power. They can get things done. They can, in fact, do things. But the sun rises with its scorching heat and withers the grass. Its flower falls. Its beauty perishes. My mother received a bouquet of flowers last week, and for... Three or four days, they're in a vase. They looked beautiful. They had a splendor. They were a delight to behold, truly. And I was just noticing yesterday, already, the beauty has perished. They, they, they live briefly. These are the things we need to think about. This is the Council of Ecclesiastes. It's better to go to a funeral than a wedding. Why? At a funeral, you remember that the end of all flesh is death and you consider your ways. His glory is in his innate insignificance. And this is, of course, directly in line with what Jesus says, right? Luke 17.10 After you've done all your Father's will, say, we're unworthy servants, we've only done our duty. Or John the Baptist, hey, John, Jesus is getting all your followers. Do something about it. You've got to rebrand yourself, John. He must increase, but I must decrease. John gloried in his innate insignificance. He must not, point B, consider himself the way the world does. Now there's a play on, um, grammatical play here that ties in with the double-minded man. I think that James insinuates that it's quite possible that that split, remember double-minded, split-souled, two-souled, divided inner being. Notice at the end of verse 8, in all his ways. Notice at the end of verse 11, the rich man will fade away in the midst of his pursuits. He, we have to be careful. If you, if you lump yourself into the wealthy side of things, I'll, I'll let you do your own math, but I certainly would, if I had to choose, I'm, I'm here. I need to be careful not to consider myself the world does, the way the world does. I have, Paul talks about this. He has reasons to boast. I've been to school, I'm pastor of a church, a husband and father. There are all these things that I could look at and think I'm important, I'm something, I'm somebody. And that will then lead me to view myself the way the world does. And I think that's the beginning of that double-mindedness. The gospel says we are sinners through and through. Nothing good is in us. And yet God loves us anyway. And we so desperately want to think, no, 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 I am valuable. I'm special. I'm a little ray of sunshine. Am I the only one? Okay, this is just confession time. No, but we want to, right? It's why today, if you don't affirm someone, you hate them, right? The, the, the morality of our culture is, I can treat you with respect, I can treat you with dignity, but if I don't agree with your decisions and your choices in life, politely, I hate you. Because if you don't affirm me, that's the only way I feel love is affirmation. 
And if I don't, you don't love me, what do you, you, well, then you hate me. And so for those who are wealthy, this is not the affirmation of value. This is the recognition of the vanity of life. It's soap bubbles, it's grasping the wind. It isn't of real importance. Now what you do with it, whether you're faithful with it in the stewardship, that's, that's a different question. But in the kingdom of God and in heaven, there's not going to be like different zip codes for different bank account levels. The rewards given by Christ are on an entirely different axis. So then, point C, he must beware of the deadly dangers of wealth. And you'll note that I make it clear that both the, the low and the rich need to be careful of the temptations. And you'll notice also that I put it in much starker terms here, the deadly dangers of wealth. I, I think there's good cause for that. Clearly, James's own treatment, the, the longer treatment on the rich indicates the greater peril. But even our Lord's own teaching is clear on this point. It is those who are rich have a more difficult time or in greater danger of perishing. Let me just, I'll read to you Luke 6. 23 to 25. Woe to you who are rich, for you've received your consolation. Woe to you who are full now, for you shall be hungry. Woe to you who laugh now, for you shall mourn and weep. And then, about 12 chapters later in Luke, we get the exact application of that. Remember the parable of the rich man and Lazarus? The rich man doesn't even have a name. And when he pleads for mercy, what does Abraham say to him? Child, you had your good things. What are you who are rich? For you've received your consolation. So if we take our Lord seriously, one of the most dangerous and precarious places you can be spiritually is to be in a position of wealth. We, we know Christians can have wealth. Paul addresses that in 1 Timothy, but it is a dangerous place to be. It's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle, right? Or remember Jesus' warning of the seed that fell upon thorny ground, right? The seed that fell upon thorny ground. As for the seed that fell among thorns, Luke 8, 14, they are those who hear, but as they go on their way, they are choked by the cares and riches and pleasures of life. And their fruit does not mature. Now, I have no doubt that there are those who fall upon the soil of poverty and lowness. And those trials choke out the sea. But Jesus doesn't address that particularly. The temptation, the smothering nature of riches and cares of life and pleasure do get singled out for attention. And so if you have this world's wealth, if you put yourself in this category, we are in a dangerous position and we need to be aware of the deadly dangers we face which are from James, I've come up with eight. You can make a longer list. First, self-importance and self-entitlement. Self-importance and self-entitlement. We see that in the very next chapter. The guy comes in with the gold ring, and I don't think it's just for nothing that they offer him the good seat. I think he prefers the good seat. I think he thinks he deserves the good seat. And you can begin to think that because the Lord has given you more earthly possessions, you somehow have a greater dignity. You have greater rights. You, you deserve to sit in the good seat. 
You deserve to be comfortable. The customer's always right after all. And so you become self-entitled. I give enough to this church. I give far more than this person gives to the church. Why shouldn't I sit where I want to sit? Park where I want to park. Or, second point, self-assurance and self-confidence. We saw that in chapter 4. If you make your plans as though you have the power to do them, you boast in your arrogance, James says. How so? Because I'm not recognizing that I'm a vapor. I got plans. And then COVID-19 comes along. And no, I don't. Or, you know, the temperatures go sub-zero. No, you don't. Or any number of other things. And you become self-confident. You're used to being able to do things. This is a very real temptation for me. I, I, I am never more vexed than when I feel like I can't do something. I'm a doer. I want to solve the problem. I want to get it done. And that's good in one sense. The danger of that is as I'm able to get things done, I think I got that done. I can handle this. And my prayer life shrivels up because I only call on the Lord. I don't know about you. I only call on the Lord when I feel I need help. And prayerlessness is a tremendous sign of self-confidence and self-assurance which are not virtues. Point three, love of the world and trusting in his wealth. This is the most obvious one. Jesus, no one can serve two masters. You're going to love the one hate that. You cannot serve God in money. And money is constantly wooing, constantly trying to trust in me, it says. I will save you. I will deliver you. It is not for nothing that we call them securities. Not that there's anything wrong in having securities, but get that your heart can be drawn into, I'm secure. I will be safe. My silo is filled. You see how James is teaching is linking right up to Jesus? You fool. Today, you will stand before God. He says to the rich man who builds his tower and fills it with grain. And interestingly enough, if you turn to chapter 5, it's not only the poor who are tempted to steal. We are going to sing our final song. We'll get there in just a moment. But because the rich can feel self-entitled, because the rich can feel important, they can oppress and they can steal. Oppression and theft. We see that listed specifically in chapter 5, right? James is not rebuking the rich for being rich. He's not woke. But he is rebuking them for mistreating the poor, robbing them, and falsely accusing them. Come now, you rich, weep and howl for the miseries that are coming upon you. Your riches have rotted, your garments are moth-eaten, your gold and your silver have corroded, and their corrosion will be evidence against you and will eat your flesh like fire. Now here are the charges. You have laid up treasure in the last days. You've hoarded. Behold, the wages of the laborer mowed, who mowed your fields, you have kept back by fraud. What's that? That's theft. It's not just the poor can be tempted to steal. There's different ways the rich can steal. We're not paying our bills. You've lived on the earth in luxury and in self-indulgence. You've fattened your hearts in a day of slaughter. You've condemned and murdered the righteous person. He does not resist you. When you can afford better attorneys, there's nothing wrong with having a good attorney, but you can then twist justice and pervert justice, potentially. So, let's try to sum this up. 
Both the rich and the poor need to not view themselves as the world views them. The world views them and says, you don't have stuff, you don't have clout, you don't have a degree, you're nothing, you're nobody. The world looks at the rich and says, you're somebody, you're important. Sit over here. And both are called to look at themselves through a spiritual lens that views them as God sees them. And both realities are true. If you're in Christ, you're rich. You're an heir of the kingdom. And if you're in Christ, you're utterly of your own, worthless, non-deserving, on all of your best deeds or filthy garments. Both of those realities are true. And what James is saying, some of us need to spend more time thinking about some of those truths than others to counterbalance and prepare us for the trials we face. And the last thing people facing these types of trials, the trials of those who are wealthy who need to be spending all their time thinking about, is how high my position is. That's just going to feed into self-entitlement, self-privilege, No, we need to combat those temptations by remembering I'm a soap bubble. I'm I'm a mist. It's gone. I'm, I'm dust walking around and the dust I will return. That's how I will navigate the trials of my life. So, James, we're going to come back to this next week. We need to persevere in trial. We need to make it to the end. And we need to arm ourselves with God's wisdom, being aware of the trials we face and focusing on the truth that will help strengthen us and counterbalance us against those trials. Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy. To the only God, our Savior, through Jesus Christ, our Lord, be glory, majesty, dominion, and authority before all time and now and forever. Amen. You are dismissed.